the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. James Blend is engineering today's program. And James Blend is co-hosting today's program. Wow, that's a lot. Are you up for it, James? Are you, are you okay? Do you need a, a cup of water or something? He needs a nap, he says. We're going to start out with some of the day's headline news. We'll also share with you our interview of the week with retired Judge Tom Cole. That's coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. We'll let you know a little bit of what's coming up next week. All of that before today's program has drawn to a close. First, looking at some of the headlines, the Iowa Democratic Party announced that 100% of precincts were finally reporting results late Thursday night, local time, 72 hours after the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses concluded on Monday. This may be the last in our nation's history of caucuses, but we'll see what happens there. Still, numerous irregularities continue to plague the Iowa caucuses, prompting Democratic National Committee Chair Tom Perez to call for a complete re-canvas to assure public confidence. Now, he's national chair. The state party is what uh, is responsible for whatever happens next, but we'll see. The state party's numbers show that Pete Buttigieg would be awarded 564 SDEs, or state delegate equivalents, while Bernie Sanders would receive 562 SDEs, two fewer than Pete Buttigieg. In the popular vote, Sanders was ahead of Buttigieg, 45,826 votes to 43,195, sort of the electoral college of the caucuses. Still, no winner has been officially declared. Almost immediately after the new results posted, more reports of discrepancies popped up. And despite the Iowa Democrats' website saying 100% of precincts were reporting, it appeared several caucus sites still had no data reported. Well, the ongoing confusion and skepticism surrounding the Iowa Democratic caucuses results uh, come as seven of the Democratic presidential candidates, Sanders, Buttigieg, Biden, Warren of Massachusetts, Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, billionaire activist Tom Steyer and entrepreneur Andrew Yang prepare for a debate in New Hampshire tonight. In other news, the White House is weighing plans to dismiss a national security official, more on that momentarily, who testified against the president during the House Democratic impeachment inquiry. The Washington Post reports that Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman, the National Security Council aide who testified during the House Democrats impeachment hearing in the fall, would be informed likely today by the administration officials that he is being reassigned to a position at the Defense Department. That took place just moments ago and we'll Tell you more about that momentarily. The move would come after the president, in a triumphant scene at the White House on Thursday, railed against what he called an evil impeachment process. Bloomberg reported that the White House plans to frame it as part of an NSC staff downsizing, not a retaliation. You can interpret that for yourself. Well, the Treasury Department complied with a Republican-controlled Senate inquiry into Hunter Biden's business dealings in Ukraine and handed over highly sensitive financial records and evidence of questionable origin 
a report said on Thursday. Yahoo News first reported that the Treasury Department began to turn over the documents related to the Senate inquiry late last year. Biden, the son of former 2020 presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden, once held a $50,000 a month job with Ukraine gas giant Burisma Holdings, while his father served under then-President Obama and was tasked with handling Ukraine policy. I need to get me one of them assignments. James, make a little coin. I mean, up and up and legitimately, of course. January adds a much stronger than expected 225,000 jobs. The labor force participation rate increased 0.2 percent, according to uh, the latest uh, reporting. Iowa Democrats released 100 percent of the caucus votes total, showing Buttigieg ahead amid calls for a re-canvas. However, Bernie Sanders has the uh, top uh, popular vote. The U.S. has killed another top terrorist days after his group claimed responsibility for the Pensacola attack. And Democrat House minions reject the GOP resolution condemning, rather condemning. There's no T in condemning, just like there's no um, D in liberty. Anyway, liberty. Um, Anyway, condemning Pelosi for ripping up the president's speech. Some say it was an official document and therefore it was unlawful. Others are saying it was simply a copy of an official document. Therefore, it doesn't matter. Just another um, just the latest salvo in this back and forth. Pelosi omits um, Christians as she lists religious persecutions around the world, even though Christians are at the top of that list. And Joe Walsh ends his race to unseat dictator Donald Trump. He can't be stopped. That's according to the National Review. The Senate um, has that a highly sensitive Hunter Biden uh, records after a letter to um, the Munder. This doesn't make any sense here. My notes are confusing me, so I'm just going to pass that one by and pretend I never started. The Trump administration is looking to take action against Alexander Vindman, which it has now done. And new high of 90 percent of Americans satisfied with their personal life. Republicans, married adults are among the most satisfied. On this day in history, 1962, President John F. Kennedy imposes a full trade embargo on Cuba. 1795, the 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution dealing with states' sovereign immunity is ratified. And Charles Dixon, it's not Dixon, it's Dickens. 1812, Charles Dickens is born in Landport, Portsmouth, England. On this day in history, 1817, America's first public gas street lamp, oh my goodness, street lamp is lighted in, that's kind of tough, first public gas street lamp is lighted in Baltimore at the corner of Market and Lemon Streets, now East Baltimore and Holiday Streets, in case you're wondering. 1904, on this day in history, a fire begins in Baltimore that rages for about 30 hours and destroys more than 1,500 buildings. And finally, on this day in history, 1984, the Space Shuttle Challenger astronauts Bruce McCandles II and Robert Stewart go on the first untethered spacewalk, which lasts nearly six hours. Well, as I mentioned, the Iowa Democratic Party announced that 100% of precincts were finally reporting results late Thursday night, 72 hours after the state's first-in-the-nation caucuses. The state's party numbers show Pete Buttigieg would be awarded 564 of the um, uh, state delegate equivalents, Bernie Sanders 562. After the second alignment, meaning the popular vote after the elimination of candidates who received less than 15 percent of the vote in the first round of caucusing, Sanders was still ahead of Buttigieg with 45,826 votes. Almost immediately after the new results posted, more reports of discrepancies popped up. As a precinct precinct captain of uh, one area, um, Scott Santon wrote, 
I know for a fact the numbers reported for that district for every candidate who got more than zero votes was wrong. 185 people caucus there. They say only 92 did. So these could be very serious and could change the outcome. Well, despite the Iowa Democrats website saying 100 percent of the precincts were uh, reporting, it appeared several caucuses, caucus sites still had no data reporting. The state party website apparently rounded up to 100 percent from 99.5. Not a great idea in this kind of a contest. Buttigieg was speaking on stage at a CNN town hall when the numbers went live. And despite all the apparent problems, anchor Chris Cuomo suggested the former South Bend, Indiana mayor had won the caucuses. And I suppose in a manner of speaking, he kind of did. We'll see what happens next. Well, the Democratic Party's seven strongest presidential contenders are preparing for what could be the fiercest debate of the 2020 primary season as the race barrels ahead toward a series of contests that will help determine the course of the nomination fight. The field has been shaken and reshaped by chaotic Iowa caucuses uh, earlier this week and Friday's debate, that's today in uh, New Hampshire, coming four days before the state's primary offers new opportunity and risk for the shrinking pool of White House hopefuls. At least one leading campaign was predicting a forceful, fiery performance. Well, two candidates, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and former Midwestern Mayor Pete Buttigieg, enter the night as the top targets, having emerged from the Iowa essentially tied for the lead. Those uh, trailing after the first contest, including former Vice President Joe Biden, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren and Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar have um, an urgent need to demonstrate strength. Billionaire activist Tom Steyer, who spent a lot of money, and New York entrepreneur Andrew Yang. Meanwhile, they're fighting to prove they belong in the conversation. The rapidly evolving dynamic means that the candidates have a very real incentive to mix it up with their Democratic rivals in the 5 o'clock p.m., 8 o'clock Easter time debate hosted by ABC. They may not uh, get another chance if they don't shine this time around. Well, this is the time when voters are eager for candidates to show they can compare and contrast, but also show that they're in it to win it. That's a quote from Democratic strategist Lily Adams. She worked on California Senator Kamala Harris' unsuccessful 2020 presidential campaign, expected to be more feisty, she says. Sanders previewed one line of attack at a breakfast event in New Hampshire's largest city, slamming Buttigieg for accepting campaign cash from wealthy donors, which Sanders and Warren have refused to do. Interestingly, um, Buttigieg is the only one on that stage who is not a millionaire. That uh, list of millionaires would include Sanders himself. And Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman, who made waves as a witness during the Trump impeachment proceedings, was fired today by the National Security Council and escorted off the White House grounds. Venman was on detail to the National Security Council from the Department of Defense, and it's expected he will return there. It comes just two days after the president was acquitted in the Senate on the impeachment charges brought by the House last year over his dealings with Ukraine. In a lengthy statement, Venman's attorney, David Pressman, confirmed that Venman has been escorted out of the White House. There is no question in the mind of any American why this man's job is over, why this country now has one less soldier serving at the White House. Pressman said LTC um, Vindman was asked to leave for telling the truth, his honor, his commitment up to right frightened the powerful, end quote. Well, the news comes after reports that the White House was weighing options to dismiss Vindman from the NSC in an effort to shrink its foreign policy bureaucracy. 
Bloomberg reported rather on Thursday that the White House planned to frame his exit as part of that downsizing rather than retaliation. The president, when asked about the reports on Friday, told reporters that he was not happy with Vindman. You think I'm supposed to be happy with him? I'm not, the president said, adding that a decision would be made soon. It's now been made. Meanwhile, Defense Secretary Mark Esper appeared to welcome the speculation that Vindman could be reassigned back to the Pentagon We welcome back all of our service members, wherever they serve, to any assignment they're given. And that is very likely where he will be returned to. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This is a fun Friday afternoon, at least in part. And we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. We're going to take a look at some of the lighter side of the news. And yes, despite what you may have imagined, there were stories that were on the lighter side, even over these last uh, couple of weeks. So we're looking forward to <laughs> switching gears and look, taking a look at some of that. Hey, there's a company, James, who is now with me. Uh, James, there's a company that has released what they're calling Politics Scented Candle. Politics scented candle. Now, let me ask you before I even go any further, would you want, given how things are at this moment, would you want a candle in your home that is scented like politics? Well, I mean, obviously the question is what exactly does that smell entail? (laughs) Well, I can tell you this right now. It's not going to be a pleasant smell, whatever it entails. But this happens to be made from the droppings of horses, genuine, and subtle notes of bureaucracy, we're being told. For anyone frustrated by politics... Kentucky for Kentucky has released a politics-scented candle that allows you to wordlessly share your frustrations. In fact, you don't even have to be in the room to air your grievances. Actually, it's probably better for you if you're not. Well, the small company that sells Kentucky-focused apparel as well as cheeky gifts describes the candle as made from real Kentucky horse or subtle notes of bureaucracy, hypocrisy, and, well, other things I'm not going to go into. Ah, politics. United, divisive, and smells like the same old stuff. Burn it down and start over with a revolutionary new scented candle. The product description reads, claiming the candle is made from real dehydrated horse droppings. Well, the limited edition candle retails for $24 on the company's website, and it claims it is perfect for family gatherings, comment sections, uh, seances, and unprompted conversations in line with the convenience store. But if you want your home to smell more apolitical, the brand has a variety of other scents like cornbread and the popular fried chicken to keep your um, uh, your abode smelling more delicious than contentious. But at least there is an option for those who've just simply had enough. They don't want to talk about it, but they just want to, you know, weigh in, if you will. That's disturbing, to say the least. Yeah. I can't, as- I can't say I'm surprised at the contents of, of said candle, but, uh, um, you know, I, I think uh, as overpriced as they may be, I, I think I'd rather take a trip to the Yankee shop. Yeah, maybe so. But I mean, it's not any more disturbing than what's happened over the last little season here. No, it certainly isn't. Yeah, sadly, that's uh, that's the case. Well, North Korea wants its citizens and the outside world to believe there is never a dull moment in the life of its ruler, Kim Jong-un. I mean, I think about this a lot. What is Kim Jong-un doing now? Is he bored? Is he excited? What's happening with Kim Jong-un? Well, in order to keep the cult of personality in place, the regime has released countless photographs and videos showing Kim doing all sorts of strange things. Here are five of the weirdest moments in recent North Korean propaganda. Kim Jong-un enjoying a bizarre musical performance. 
Well, in one of his latest exploits, and this is a video, Kim is spotted watching a group of the Hermit Kingdom's female soldiers singing and dancing in front of him, backed by a trio of playing uh, of guitar players, drums and accordion. Well, the dictator taking in the performance from a desk on the other side of the long, narrow table at first appears unsure what to think. He then bursts out into applause. He's apparently moved. The strange scene reportedly was part of a documentary about two and a half hours long that highlights Kim's exploits in 2019. Two and a half hours long of nothing but Kim doing stuff. It also- Is that on Netflix? <laughs> Can I get that on Netflix? <laughs> I'll Hulu? check into it. It also has clips of Kim inspecting just about everything, ranging from the bowels of um, animals, uh, bowls of soup. Is, is he making candles while he's doing bath- that? <laughs> bathroom sinks. Which um, brings a reminder of the next item on the list. Now, at least our politicians aren't doing this yet. Kim yeah, smiles. That's the right word. Yeah. Kim smiles during a visit to a lubricant factory. Well, if you feel unsettled looking at coils of a shiny orange yellow unknown substance coming out of a pipe, you're not alone. The lubricant factory employee, that is, you know, lotions and that sort of thing, photographed alongside Kim. In this propaganda image, doesn't look thrilled at what he's uh, seeing either. Now, this is the actual worker, despite the dear leader grinning from ear to ear, because it is so exciting to watch lubricants squirt out of a, uh, a tube. Well, Kim, during a visit to the facility, reportedly praised its employees for their work and thanked them for producing the product uh, that North Korea previously had imported. And then there's the notepads, notepads, notepads propaganda. It might be the one thing that has more appearances in North Korean propaganda than Kim himself, and that is the notepad. Whether Kim is inspecting dress shoes, fish farms, soccer fields, swimming pools, he seems to always have some kind of knowledge to share. And for those closest to him, what better way to record this infinite wisdom than with the ubiquitous all-weather notepad? Well, the scenes of people lining up alongside Kim and furiously scribbling down everything he says as a propaganda trick his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, Uh, started in the 50s. Um, This is really thrilling to watch. These are pictures that will be broadcast on television, shown in the state media. So those who are there want to be seen recording Kim Jong-un's every word. It's about presenting him as having broad knowledge. However, it's ridiculous. He can't possibly know about all of these um, different things that he apparently is speaking to. I mean, maybe he does. I I don't know. And then there's the North Korean schools claim that Kim first drove uh, a car when he was age three. That uh, may or may not be true, but it does raise questions about the wisdom of his parents. If someone ever told you about a person being able to drive a car at three years old, uh, you'd probably imagine a toddler maneuvering an all-plastic set of wheels. Yet Kim, at that age, managed to operate the real deal. If a syllabus distributed to the North Korean teachers in 2015 is to be believed. Well, the same syllabus also states that Kim figured out boats at the age of nine, where he raced the chief executive of a foreign yacht company who was visiting uh, North Korea at the time. So the nine-year-old apparently went head to head. Then there's the propaganda tool. North Koreans helped Dennis Rodman wish Kim a happy birthday. Now, that uh, that was an image I don't think you'd, you're going to want to miss. North Korean state media has uh, helped publicize Dennis Rodman's visits to the Hermit Kingdom over the years, releasing a number of images and videos showing Kim cozying up to the former five-time NBA champion. But it's during a visit in 2014 that things get especially, well, peculiar. A crowd of thousands that packed an auditorium in Pyongyang for a basketball game suddenly start clapping in sync as Rodman sang Kim Happy Birthday. He sings Happy Birthday. It's really quite touching. 
The likely display of forced celebration is not uncommon in North Korea. Years earlier, reports emerged of authorities punishing North Koreans who didn't display enough sadness and grief over the death of Kim's father, Kim Jong-il. So uh, if you are featured in one of these uh, pieces, you'd better respond appropriately. Either have your pad in hand, your pen poised to write every word, a big smile on your face, or a willingness to simply clap because, well, it's the dear leader's birthday. Hmm. So you think our political season is bad. An Ohio man is pondering what to do with the 55,000 duplicate statements addressed to his home by a student loan company. 55,000 of the same statements. Dan Kane said that he was suspicious when a postal worker in Twinsburg, Ohio, told him recently that his uh, mail wouldn't fit through the front door of the post office. When Kane drove his truck around to the back of the building, he found a postal worker wheeling out two large bins of letters. It turned out that there was a total of 79 bins of the letters, and it took Kane two trips to deliver them to the garage of his family's home in the city's roughly 25 miles uh, east of Cleveland. Officials from College Avenue Student Loan said that uh, in an email, rather, that Monday, uh, on Monday, rather, that it apologized for the error in its mailing system and uh, was putting corrective measures in place to prevent it from happening in the future. We're working with Dan directly on a remedy, including picking up the mail from him, if possible, and a statement credit from for the inconvenience, the company said. I just hope it doesn't happen again. Uh, I must uh, I might just have to return to sender. Well, the duplicate statements were for a loan Kane and his wife had taken out for college tuition. He also indicated that the statement was wrong and believed the company used the wrong interest rate to calculate the payment. College Avenue Student Loans said in an email that there wasn't an error in the calculation. The rate matches what was disclosed when the loan was originated, adding they also were working with Kane to resolve his questions regarding the interest rate. I'm not sure why anyone would believe that they got the loan amount right when they sent 55,000 duplicate copies of the same piece of mail. Just the sheer amount of postage that company wasted. Oh it's got to be more. I mean, I would guess. I mean, 55,000. What's a post? I mean, even, you know, obviously there's bulk rate and all that. But uh, what's a what's a stamp these days? 50 cents about? Yeah, 47. I'm, I'm not really sure. I haven't well, seen anything. I mean, it's 55. I mean, that's $27,500 <laughs> in stamps. That's yeah. got to be a good percentage of whatever that student loan is. That's the kicker. Yeah, but the good news is um, they got at least the loan amount right. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens there. Because competency seems to be a strong point. Well, that story might explain this one. A pressured postal worker in Virginia hid undelivered mail in a storage unit. We'll tell you more about how much he hid when we come back from the break. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a, at least a mostly fun Friday. We're winding our way through some of the lighter side of the news. James Blind is uh, not only engineering and producing, but he's weighing in from time to time as well. Well, as I mentioned before the uh, before the break, a United States postal worker in Virginia hid nearly 5,000 pieces of mail inside a storage unit he rented because he felt too overwhelmed to to deliver it on time. So he didn't deliver it at all. Jason Delacruz rather pleaded guilty to one felony count of theft or delay of mail uh, mail matter by an officer or employee, according to court documents obtained by the local news outlets there. He's sentenced to uh, 
or rather he's scheduled to be sentenced on the 12th. The investigation began back in May of last year after U.S. Postal Service officials received a complaint about a carrier who was stowing mail inside a public storage facility in Virginia Beach. Well, Dela Cruz, who's been working as a carrier since uh, June of 2018, was uh, connected to the incident after a witness took a photo of the carrier's license plate and alerted officials. He told authorities that he couldn't make time to deliver all the mail and felt pressured to finish his route, the document stated. He said that he first intended to deliver the mail when he found time, but fell behind and was never able to. Well, Cruz began hiding the mail in November uh, or December of 2018 and rented the storage unit in February of 2019 for $49 a month. Investigators found 97 pieces of first-class mail, which included mail from insurance companies, the IRS, the Department of Motor Vehicles, bank statements, tax return documents, according to the records. Second-class mail included 115 magazines and other publications, while assorted advertisements made up about 4,700 pieces. Investigators uh, also found one package. Well, records show the United States Postal Service delivered the first-class mail, but threw away the advertisements because, well, they were outdated. Wow. Well, a Portland International Airport traveler decided he uh, needed a bigger screen for his video games. In fact, I think you brought this to my attention, uh, James. Um, He found one. It just happened to be, um, well, it was a monitor uh, used for official airport business. You know, you walk through the airport and there are monitors that have all kinds of information, flight arrivals, flight uh, delays, and so on. Yeah, that's, yeah, it, it was exactly that. And uh, I think the what we would have assumed in this situation turns out to be true. You, you should not do that. <laughs> yeah, you should not do that. Well, according to Port of Portland spokesperson, um, early in the morning, a traveler plugged his PlayStation 4 into the monitor that showed a map of the airport. Well, that is obviously something that we don't want to have happen, says this spokesperson. Uh, because travelers need the information that we're putting on the screen for them to get where they need to go. Well, operations supervisor approached the gamer and uh, very kindly asked the person to unplug and cease using the monitor at the airport. According to Simons, the man asked very politely if he could finish his game. (laughs) Sadly for him, the answer was no. I mean, you're diverting travelers. They don't have information they need to get from one end to the airport to the other. And you want to finish the game. Who knows how much longer he had to play? Well, apparently it was a very polite and cordial interaction. Uh, Simon said, uh, calling it a good reminder of what not to do in the airport. I'm surprised there was even a way uh, to do that in the airport. I wouldn't have even thought that that would be possible. I mean, I guess, you know, they they can't especially make a monitor just for the airports that you can't plug into. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, these digital streaming devices like the Roku's and the Amazon uh, devices and Google Chrome's and stuff, you, you can, you know, it's pretty easy if you're on vacation to find a way to plug those into your TVs there and not have to pay for, you know, the, the, the services that, that they offer for extra. So it doesn't surprise me, but it surprises me that anybody would see that, one, think of it, and then further think it was a good idea. <laughs> Well, one did, and uh, fortunately, he didn't get in too much trouble. It apparently was a big deal, but not as big a deal as it might have been. It's probably something they chuckled about shortly thereafter. Yeah, one, one can only hope, and hope that not too many travelers were diverted from where they were trying to, to go because of this fiasco. I mean, I know that I was flying that day, and instead of going to Topeka, I wound up in Super Mario Land, but I <laughs> think it's coincidence, I'm sure. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the uh, Mr. Peanut and the fact that he his untimely demise had led uh, other mascots to be 
uh, reconsidered whether or not they were still relevant. Well, if you happen to watch the Super Bowl, as promised, the rest of the story continued in the second half of the game. Uh, And just 10 days after planners announced the sudden death of their 104-year-old mascot, Mr. Peanut, uh, the brand resurrected his diaper ambassador in the form of Baby Nut, reincarnated in fancy, or rather in infancy, with a gimmick uh, that has social media commentators uh, thoroughly divided. It didn't make sense to me. Why Why have a baby peanut? To me, it felt like, it, as silly as it sounds, it feels like a blatant ripoff of uh, the, the whole Baby Yoda craze. Yeah, let's not bring that up. I know, it creeps you out, but am I wrong? Does yeah. it, does it, does, is there not a vague resemblance even? No, it's, that, uh, Mr. Peanut doesn't creep me out. Even as a baby? No. You, uh, yeah, the, the, you do need help. <laughs> well, we've known that for quite some time. This is true. Anyway, um, during the Super Bowl uh, last Sunday, planners broadcast a 30-second spoof of the elder Mr. Peanut's funeral, which included the likes of Mr. Clean and Kool-Aid Man paying their respects. As the service proceeded, the teary Kool-Aid Man cried onto the grave's uh, mound of dirt as the clouds parted and a sprout magically grew from the earth. Then a baby-sized Mr. Peanut look-alike emerged from the plant's leaves, complete with the famous mascot signature hat and smile. I, it had a monocle too, didn't it? I don't believe so. I don't think there was. A, I didn't remember. Don't remember look, that. But, but he was wearing a hat. Um, yes. What is that? A baby nut? The stunned attendee wondered. Well, the baby nut cooed and made dolphin noises. You know, the, <laughs> uh, revealing that uh, all was well in the legume kingdom after all. Just kidding. I'm back. The nut announced. Where's my monocle? He said. Hello, world. I'm happy to be back. I can't believe everyone came together for little old me. Uh, reps for the newborn peanut later tweeted, adding the hashtag baby nut. Naturally, Twitter users had a field day with this shocking revelation. Some fans warmly welcomed the birth of baby nut. Others were more skeptical of the platter's stunt, arguing that it was a knockoff of the beloved baby Yoda character. There you go. From Disney's uh, Star Wars inspired series, The Mandalorian. Well, planners reported in their iconic Mr. Peanut na- uh, mascot had died back on the 22nd of last month. And though the unexpected passing of the uh, dapper legend certainly got people talking on social media, planters uh, paused the campaign following news of the tragic helicopter crash that killed the NBA great Kobe Bryant and his daughter. It just did not seem appropriate. But the uh, younger peanut is now back in his, uh, I guess, younger and newer form. Kind of a waste. I mean, it's like to me, it just seemed like it was uh, acknowledgement of regret. We killed off the icon. Uh, now we got to do something. I mean, what's this baby got supposed to do? Is he does he grow up quickly? Is he a child for a long period of time? It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's like, are we going to see the baby nut growing up and texting? And you know, actually, I, I, what I think probably will happen is you'll see the baby nut go through a teenage rebellious phase where his parents <laughs> try to take him on vacation, right? And they're going through the airport, and the kid decides to plug in his video gaming system on an airport monitor. And play games. Yeah, that could so happen. I could see that. I really could see that. <laughs> I don't want to see that, but yes, it, it could happen. You just never know these days. Well, you really don't. Well, residents in an apartment building in India discovered uh, free mixed drinks on tap in their kitchens earlier this week, although not the kind anyone was hoping for. A smelly combination of libations, beer, brandy, and rum started coming out of their faucets uh, after a water well became uh, contaminated. Now, how do you contaminate it with those things in particular? Well, the station says 6,000 liters of confiscated alcohol that had been seized on court orders and 
uh, buried in a pit nearby, accidentally seeped through the soil. (laughs) My goodness. The children couldn't go to school and even their parents couldn't go to work. I mean, you got to have water. Officials promised to clean up the well, but residents say it may take up to a month, having libations come through the tap, all mixed together. Uh, They've been supplying about 5,000 liters of water daily, but it's not enough to cover all the families in the building, says uh, the super. Residents surprised to find this coming out of their tap. And then uh, when we come back, I want to tell you about another incident in India where villagers there, now India is a whole country, this is a particular village, but um, I've had, um, I've been assaulted by monkeys in India. Not They're not everywhere, but there are places in which you really have to be on the on the lookout. But villagers in India have dressed up as bears to scare off more than 2,000 monkeys. We'll tell you more about uh, that, why they did it, how they did it, and how you might do it in your own neighborhood. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the lighter side of the news. James Blend is engineering, producing, and well, chiming in from time to time. Well, villagers, Chime. may I may I speak without interruption? Sure. Okay. Villagers in India began ter- uh, being terrorized by more than two thousand wild monkeys, claimed to have found an unconventional way to tackle the simian menace. They're dressing up as bears. Now, I went to some kind of a shrine in India when I was there in the fall of 2018. And um, these monkeys are very aggressive, the wild monkeys that are just around. And they also know how to uh, interact with people in such a way as to take their stuff. They can get into your purse. They can grab a drink. They can take your food. And you literally had to hold things in a particular way so that the monkeys would recognize they could not successfully uh, assault you for your stuff. So it was pretty, um, pretty scary. But anyway, this is in, uh, l- let me try to say this, Sikandarpur village in Uttar Pradesh. Um, two villagers dressed in bear costumes to try to scare away the monkeys after the forest department ignored their pleas for help. Uh, we have now started taking turns and wearing the bear costume and roaming around the village, says uh, one of the heads of the village. Uh, it was a relative who had uh, told me about the idea, and it is actually working. Now, we, we'll have to wait and see how long it will work because the monkeys are very clever and they might just catch on. Villagers donated money to buy three costumes from a makeup artist for 1,700 Indian rupees, about $23.82 each. Uh, the outlet posted a photo of villagers outfitted in two of the costumes. Well, the village now claims the trick has led to a drastic dip in monkey attacks. Uh, There had previously been 150 reports of such attacks, which especially targeted children. They're much smaller and easier. The Forest Department had told villagers that a lack of funds has prevented them from doing much about the exploding monkey population. The monkey population is rapidly rising throughout parts of India, according to a forest official. Catching a monkey would cost about 600 Indian rupee or $8.41. And last time we got funds uh, was in 2018. We had called a rescue team from Mathura, forest officer said. Well, the most the officers could do was to allow villagers to catch the monkeys themselves and help them release the uh, bothersome simians into the wild elsewhere. Apparently, you can't do away with them. He added that he would visit the village, and if he sees that uh, the bear trick is working, he'll suggest it to other villages. So rather than the municipality dealing with it, they'll just simply encourage villages to get monkey costumes of their own. 
Last year, a a farmer in one of the other villages um, uh, resorted to painting his pet dog uh, with tiger stripes to protect his uh, coffee crop from thieving monkeys. So if you think you've got it bad, if you think life is rough for you, let me encourage you to consider it could be worse. You could be surrounded by marauding monkeys, uh, or you might be required to wear a... um, an outfit, uh, a bear costume in order to prevent monkeys from attacking you and your children, or you'd have to resort to purchasing costumes for your, your animals. So it could be worse. Yeah. I mean, uh, this seems like a lose-lose. This seems like an absolute lose-lose proposition. Well, you know, you got 2,000 monkeys, and this is in one village, uh, and you got to resort to this sort of thing. I mean, how often do you have to come out in the costume? How long does this work? When do they figure out, eh, this thing's kind of fishy. It seems like this would be something covered by the uh, the law of diminishing results. <laughs> yeah, I think that's Where, probably okay, the case. Okay, a couple hours at work this time, and then a month later, yeah, they're not fooled. They're not fooled at all. Yeah. So, as I said, it could be works. Well, Puxatawney Phil underwent uh, great stress, uh, and he does so every year on Groundhog Day, and PETA is saying they should uh, replace him with a robot. Ingrid Newkirk uh, writes in a letter to the furry celebrities Groundhog Club that Phil deserves a break and should be allowed to retire. Of course, the thing is only trotted out one day a year. The request posted on PETA's website comes ahead of the uh, or came rather ahead of the annual ceremony, which determines whether spring will arrive early in the year. Well, Phil sees his shadow and um, in the small town of Pennsylvania He'll retreat, and the winter will uh, continue for six weeks. If he does, uh, if he does not see his shadow, then spring will soon be here. And by the way, they tell us that spring will soon be here. It's a burden that Phil should be spared, according to the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. As a prey species, groundhogs actively avoid humans, they write. Being in close proximity to the public causes these animals great stress. Newkirk adds that when Phil is dragged out of his hole and held up uh, to the lights and the crowds, he has no idea what's happening. Being relegated to a library habitat for the, the other days of the year doesn't allow him to, and the other groundhog, uh, to dig burrows or to forage, and it's no kind life for these animals. So they're suggesting that perhaps a robot would be a better replacement. Now, James, can you imagine a robot uh, rolling out? And, I mean, how would the robot determine spring, summer? I mean, I guess it would have some type of algorithm, I would guess. But, uh, yeah, I don't... But it wouldn't be independent of the individuals that no, program it. it so not, it's just no. it's not going to work. And, you know, what would inevitably happen, though, and you know... And it would be just like PETA to cause this would be the the robot takeover of the planet starts with robot groundhogs. <laughs> starts with one day a year. And next thing you know, they're out to other times. Speaking, speaking of Groundhog Day, you know, of course, obviously, fairly classic movie. Um, did you see the Super Bowl commercial with it? Yes. Yes, I did. I have to say that was, it was just kind of fun to see. That was kind of cute. It was. Yeah. Um, Florida. Apparently, they were desperate for an official state pet. Shelter pets, plural, because now singular doesn't necessarily mean singular and plural doesn't necessarily mean multiple. Shelter pets are about to get a little more love in the Sunshine State. A bill which was unanimously approved by the state Senate is lobbying to make shelter pets Florida's official state pet. Again, plural, singular. eh. The one-page bill which was filed in September states any shelter animal that resides at or has been adopted from an animal shelter or an animal rescue organization is designated as the official Florida state pet. Florida wouldn't be the first state to declare shelter pets its official state icon. 
If Governor Ron DeSantis signs off, the law would become uh, effective immediately. Florida wouldn't be the first state, as I mentioned, to uh, have this sort of designation. In March of last year, Ohio officials made shelter pets their state animal, following um, Colorado, California, Georgia, Illinois, and Tennessee, which also have uh, legislation they've passed recognizing shelter pets as the state pet. Pets, pet. Okay, that's disturbing to me, but I guess they don't have to match. Well, the push, which is also reportedly being considered by Texas and you guessed it, Oregon, is to raise public awareness for shelter pets and help adopt rescue animals, the Humane Society of the U.S. said in a previous statement. Now, I don't think you have to have the official animal of the state, a shelter pet, to draw attention and to raise awareness, but there you have it. Meanwhile, PETA is mocked, uh, is being mocked, rather, for calling the word pet a derogatory term suggesting companion would be the better word to describe our furry and slithery and scaly friends. Sorry, everyone. Not only are you walking your dog wrong, you're referring to your pet wrong, too. Well, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals has sparked some backlash after a spokesperson for the animal rights organization called the term pet derogatory, claiming that it patronizes the animal. And apparently they are highly offended. On the daytime television program Good Morning Britain, Jennifer White of PETA attempted to explain the group's position on the word pet and suggested... It should be switched uh, with more inclusive terms like companion and human carer. A lot of people at home who have dogs or cats uh, will call them pets and refer to themselves as owners. And this simply implies that the animals are a possession, like a car, for example. When you refer to animals not as the living beings that they are, but as an inanimate object, it can reflect our treatment of those animals. Now, when will it end? Well, the crux of her argument uh, hinged on her belief that referring to an animal as a pet creates a perception of that animal being disposable, a point she tried backing up with a seemingly non-related point that people who are gifted pets for Christmas return them to shelters by January because the novelty is worn off. It was a bit of a stretch. Naturally, those appearing alongside her, including Good Morning host uh, Piers Morgan and Susanna Reed uh, and others, had opinions on the matter. One was uh, quick to interrupt the point about the dogs being returned quickly after Christmas, claiming it was a problem with education, not words that are used. You're trivializing all the work PETA has done by basically trying to change a name, the host went on to say. I am an owner because I bought my dog and I own it, equating the term owner with ownership and the idea that to own something means having some kind of care for something and taking responsibility. I have responsibility for my dog as the owner, the host went on to say. Well, those on Twitter seem to be the pet side of things. On the other hand, some took issue with uh, uh, how the guest was treated on the program. The founder and president of the organization explained the organization's stance uh, further on other outlets, but it's not really taking. People love their pets. They own their pets. They pay the vet bills. They try to take good care of their pets, but they are still their pets. Well, an animal rescue shelter in North Carolina is being brutally honest in an adoption ad for what it describes as the world's worst cat. Can you say that with me, James? The world's worst cat. World's worst cat. I'm just trying to see if you're paying attention. Put the phone down, boy. Um, Mitchell County Animal Rescue tells prospective owners exactly what to expect from domestic short hair mix Perdita. I mean, the name right there should tell you something. It's gone viral. Apparently, Perdita, who thought she was sick, turns out she's just a jerk. The spruce pine based shelter captioned pictures of the four year old black and white uh, cat uh, they took in on Christmas Eve following the death of her owner. The reportedly unfriendly feline, like sh- staring into your soul until you feel as if you've 
never going to be cheerful again. The fat, the um, cat likes lurking in dark corners, being queen of her domicile, and fooling shelter staff into thinking she's sick. Perdita dislikes kittens, dislikes dogs, dislikes children, dislikes hugs, but is ready to be socially awkward with a socially awkward human who understands personal space. The ad concludes. She is, however, spayed and vaccinated per Pet Finder. It's not clear how tongue-in-cheek the shelter is being about the ad It didn't immediately respond to requests for further information. But if you're looking for the worst cat ever, Perdita might, in fact, be the pet for you. Perdita. Wow. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll give you a brief look at uh, some of the headline news. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing today's program. James Blend is engineering today's program, and he's been chiming in from time to time throughout today's program. In this hour, we're going to uh, share with you some of the top headlines of the day. We're also going to share the interview of the week. And we'll tell you about millennials who, well, say being plant parents is harder than expected. All of that in this hour. First, some of the headlines. The Iowa Democratic Party announced that 100% of precincts were finally reporting results late Thursday night. That's 72 hours after the state's first in the nation caucuses concluded on Monday after... um, Numerous irregularities led to uh, led the head of the Democratic National Committee to call for a complete recanvas. Well, the state's party numbers show that Pete Buttigieg would be awarded 564 state delegate equivalents. Bernie Sanders would be given 562 of the same. Sanders held a sizable popular vote lead, though, and finished ahead of Buttigieg by 43,671 to 37,557 vote margin. Well, after the second alignment, meaning the popular vote after the elimination of candidates who received less than 15% of the vote in the first round of caucusing, Sanders was still ahead of Buttigieg, 45,000 to 43. Almost immediately after the news uh, results were posted, more reports of discrepancies popped up. One precinct captain wrote on Twitter that he could faithfully say that the report results were obviously wrong. As a precinct captain in one area, I know for a fact the numbers reported for that district for every candidate who got more than zero votes are wrong. He said 100 and, excuse me, 85 people caucus there. They say only 92 did. And despite the Iowa Democrats website saying 100 percent of the precincts were reporting, it appeared several caucus sites still had no data reported. The state party website apparently rounded up to 100 percent from 99.5 percent. When you have a close race like Sanders and Buttigieg, you really can't round up. Well, Buttigieg uh, was on CNN at the time and it was announced that he did, in fact, win. But Sanders minutes earlier and throughout the day said that he won the race considering his popular vote advantage. Well, the disastrous caucuses drew mockery from the president in the day days leading up to and following as he argued in the East Room of the White House, the Democrats couldn't be trusted to run the nation's health care system. Elizabeth Warren, by the way, finished with 387 uh, delegates. Uh, Joe Biden with 341. Amy Klobuchar, 264. Andrew Yang, 22. By popular vote, Warren had 32,533 votes. And after the first round of caucusing, 34,000. 
after the second. Biden had 26,000 around um, after round one, 23,000 after round two. Amy Klobuchar, 22,000 after round one, 21 after round two. Andrew Yang plummeted from 8,800 in the first round to 1,700 in the second. Those numbers were catastrophic for Biden, who's run his campaign on the notion that he's the most electable candidate. For other candidates, the confusion threatened to overshadow the typical media-driven momentum boost that results from a strong Iowa performance. But now it's off to New Hampshire. Well, the Democratic Party's seven strongest candidate contenders are preparing for what could be the the fiercest A debate to date in the 2020 primary season. The field's been shaken and reshaped uh, by chaotic Iowa caucus uh, reports and much more. Two candidates, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, former Midwestern Mayor Pete Buttigieg, enter the night as the top targets having emerged from Iowa, essentially tied for the lead. Billionaire activist Tom Steyer and New York um, entrepreneur Andrew Yang, meanwhile, are fighting to prove they belong in the conversation. This is the time when voters are eager for candidates to show that they can, in fact, compare and contrast uh, contrast with others and that they're in the game. Sanders uh, previewed uh, one line of attack against his um, strongest proponent, Buttigieg, leading up to tonight's debate. He says, I like Pete Buttigieg, nice guy, uh, before reading a series of headlines about wealthy donors backing Buttigieg. But we are... um, Uh, We're in a moment where billionaires control not only our economy, but our political life. Channeling an old folk ballad popularized by Pete Seeger, Sanders added, this campaign is about which side are you on? Well, traditionally, the knives come out during this phase of the presidential primary process. It was the pre-New Hampshire debate four years ago on the Republican side when then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie devastated Florida Senator Marco Rubio's presidential ambitions with a well-timed takedown. Rubio never recovered, making it easier for Donald Trump to emerge as his party's presidential nominee. The stakes are particularly high this week for Biden, who's played frontrunner in virtually every one of the previous seven debates, but left Iowa in distant fourth place. While reporting irregularities have blunted the impact of the Iowa con- contest, rather, Biden's weakness rattled supporters who encouraged him to take an aggressive tack tonight. One of Biden's more prominent New Hampshire backers, Democratic operative Jim Demers, said this is the time to fight. People want to see fire. They want to see fight. And uh, they want to see the differences. Well, on Sanders, Biden seized on the Vermont senator's status as a self-described Democratic socialist. And he also conceded the obvious that his Iowa finish was underwhelming at best. He called it a gut punch before embracing the underdog role. This isn't the first time in my life I've been knocked down. What he didn't say is he's also been knocked out. So we'll see if this is one of those times. Meanwhile, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vendman, who made waves as a witness during the Trump impeachment proceedings, was fired today by the National Security Council and escorted off the White House grounds. Vindman was on detail to the National Security Council from the Department of Defense and is expected to return there. It comes just two days after the president was acquitted in the Senate on the impeachment charges brought by the House last year over his dealings with Ukraine. But the news comes after reports that the White House was weighing options to dismiss Vindman. Uh, and apparently exercised them. Trump, when asked about the reports on Friday, told reporters that he was not happy with him. Uh, You think I'm supposed to be happy with him? I'm not. Meanwhile, Defense Secretary Mark Esper appeared to welcome the speculation that Vindman could be reassigned back to the Pentagon, saying we welcome back all of our service members wherever they serve to uh, any assignment they're given. Well, Vindman was an important witness for Democrats during the House impeachment inquiry. He raised concerns over Trump's July 25th phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky, in which he pressed Kiev to launch an investigation 
concerning presidential candidate Joe Biden's family. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler on Friday blasted the removal of Vindman, calling it a subversion of justice. People who disagree with me are not scum, Nadler said. Uh, It's uh, more than just settling scores. This is a subversion of justice. Well, the House uh, voted to impeach Trump in December on Wednesday after weeks of trial, 86 days to be precise. The Senate voted to acquit the president on both charges against him, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. During Benman's testimony before the House Intelligence Committee, he drew applause after expressing his love for America when asked how he overcame his fear of being retaliated against. Congressman, because this is America, this is the country I have served and defended, that all of my brothers have served, and here, right matters. I knew I was assuming a lot of risks. My father deeply worried about my testimony because in his context, it was the ultimate risk. Well, he has now been returned to the Defense Department. Well, the U.S. economy added an impressive 225,000 jobs in January as low unemployment rates continue for all Americans. The new job report shatters the experts' predictions and continues to make the case that because of good economic policy, America is flourishing. The report shows that since the president was elected in November of 2016, employment gains have surpassed 100,000 jobs in 35 out of the past 38 months and have been uh, positive for a record-setting 112 months. As the unemployment rate ticked up slightly from 3.5 to 3.6 percent, the labor force participation rate jumped from 62.3 percent to 63.4, adding 574,000 workers to the civilian labor force. Well, this suggests that while people may not have a job, they are actively looking for one, which is reflected by the increase of 183,000 in the number of Americans reentering the labor force. The labor force participation rate for January represents the highest so far for the Trump administration. In this instance, a higher unemployment rate is a good sign. More Americans have decided to leave the sidelines of the long-term unemployed and now are looking for work. So why are Americans jumping back into the labor force? Well, one factor may be that the nation is currently has 6.8 million jobs open, and the other is wage growth. Last month, average hour, hourly earning for all employees rose from $0.07 cents to $28.44 an hour. That was a 0.2% increase from December at 2.9% growth and keeps us at a healthy average growth rate of 3.1% over the last 12 months. Well, coming up, we're going to hear from uh, uh, retired Judge Tom Cole with our interview of the week. And then and closing the program, we'll talk about millennials who say, hey, being plant parents is harder than expected. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show, taking a quick look at some of our guests uh, for next week, and we're working on others as well. We'll be talking with Gene Hothhouse, who is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. We're also going to talk once again with Tara Matson, more long form. Her book is titled Courageous, Being Daughters Rooted in Grace. We'll talk with Dave Harvey next week. I Still Do. That's the title of his book, Growing Closer and Stronger Through Life's Defining Moments. And we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress. He's author of Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And we certainly live in one. Well, 7 in 10 millennials consider themselves plant parents, according to new research. Plant parents. It's a new concept. Seems to me I thought you'd have offspring, biological or adopted, and you raise them as other small humans into 
mature adults, but now you can be the parent to pretty much anything. Seven in 10 millennials consider themselves plant parents. I'm not sure there's a tax credit for that, but while millennial demand for houseplants is high, the poll of 2,000 millennials aged 25 to 39 discovered 67% say taking care of plants is more of a challenge than they bargained for. Almost half don't, cert- don't uh, currently own plants because they don't know how to take care of them, and 20% would sooner sit through a root canal than take care of a plant because of the pressure. The pressure, huh? With the greatest uh, great responsibility and benefits of having a plant come great challenges. And according to the results of this particular survey, we could benefit from a crash course in the art of keeping plants alive. Depending on the plant, of course, some take more care than others. The study conducted by One Point in conjunction with uh, uh, article, which is something else, examined the attitudes and behaviors of millennials toward plants and uncovered that 22% are apprehensive about owning a plant because they've accidentally killed one in the past. In fact, the average plant parent, plant parent, still getting used to that moniker, has killed seven plants they've bought and brought into their homes. Well, the most challenging part about trying to care for a plant was found to be knowing the proper amount of sunlight needed. But the uh, challenges don't end there. Respondents were also clueless on how much water a plant needs, whether the plant should uh, live inside or outside, and the practice of pruning a plant. I mean, these are all things you could quite easily learn. Three in ten respondents revealed one uh, of the hardest lessons that comes with being a good plant parent is how easily it can be to accidentally kill your plant. Well, this leads to a bit of anxiety, as three in five often worry about making sure their plants have enough sunlight, while a further 56% say they often worry about whether their plants have enough water. Plants are an easy way to add color uh, and life to any space, says the director of um, article, which is contributed to the report. The survey revealed millennials, the desire to incorporate plants into their home, despite the apprehension and challenges associated with plant care. Well, according to the survey, which one might question why it was taken in the first place, half of respondents said they decided to add plants to their space because it complemented their overall aesthetic and decor, while another 47% said they incorporated greenery into their home because it's trendy. Well, and doesn't it oxygenate the room? I mean, that's supposed to be a helpful thing. Anyway, people get uh, anxious over a lot of things that shouldn't be quite as anxiety-producing as they apparently are. One other serious uh, note I wanted to mention before we wind up today, a federal appeals court unanimously ruled that more than 200 Democratic congressional lawmakers do not have standing to sue the president over allegations he violated the emoluments clause over foreign payments to his businesses. Now, this is perhaps the last blow of the week to Democrats who have had a pretty rough week. Um, Because we concluded that the members lack standing, we reverse... um, the district court and remand with instruction to dismiss their complaint, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit said in its ruling. The House members can and likely will continue to use their weighty voices to make their case to the American people, their colleagues in Congress and the president himself, all of whom are free to engage that uh, argument as they see fit. The court continued, but we will not. Indeed, we cannot participate in this debate. Well, the court added that The Constitution permits the the judiciary to speak only in the context of an Article III case or controversy, and this lawsuit presents neither. Holding up a copy of the ruling as he departed Washington for a North Carolina event, the president blasted the suit as a phony case. It was a total win, he declared. He's holding up a lot of things this week, declaring a win. Well, the ruling comes after the court ruled in August 
that the president could challenge the lawsuit, saying the litigation raises the unsettled question of whether politicians have standing to sue a sitting president for running international businesses. The Emoluments Clause is contained in Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, and it states that no title of nobility <clears throat> excuse me, shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office of profit or trust under them shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind whatsoever from any king, prince, or foreign state. Well, more than 200 congressional Democrats brought the lawsuit against the president in June of 2017. So this is longstanding, alleging the president violated that clause. They argued that they had standing to sue because the clause says only Congress may approve foreign gifts and payments. Well, the framers gave Congress a unique role, a unique right and responsibility. Senator Richard Blumenthal argued, but was overturned. Well, upon taking office, the president turned over control of his companies to his sons, Eric and Donald Trump. Uh, but did not divest them, meaning he still technically can benefit financially from the Trump organization profits, including from foreign governments. Since becoming president, the Trump organization had secured dozens of valuable patents, including in China, and collected fees from lobbyists working for Saudi Arabia and other countries using his properties. A federal appeals court earlier this year dismissed a similar emoluments clause lawsuit filed against the president by the state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. Well, the president at an event in Pennsylvania last year said, I got sued on a thing called emoluments. You never heard of uh, the word. Nobody ever heard of it before. Well, he's heard of it now. And of course, it's in the Constitution, which I would encourage all of us to read from time to time. But uh, the appeals court has handed him another win this week. Moving forward. Just a reminder, debate New Hampshire. I want to check that out on ABC. I want to thank James Blend for producing. I want to thank James Blend for engineering. And thank James Blend for popping in from time to time. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.